G'day and welcome to the Fred Paul Show on ADH TV, coming to you from beside the frozen pond at Wimbledon Common on the coldest start to winter in Britain for 15 years. Under normal circumstances, these freezing conditions would be yet more proof that global warming is a lie. But as we all know, these aren't normal circumstances, not at least while some people still think that men can be women, Hamas can find peace with Israel, and US President Joe Biden can complete a coherent sentence without falling over. The bitter irony of these freezing conditions is that to prevent the planet from getting hotter, and I repeat, that isn't happening anyway, ordinary Britons need to freeze in the cold. Heating homes is essential to surviving winter here, especially for the elderly. And for decades, this has been done using oil and gas heaters. But these oil and gas heaters are also a significant contributor to greenhouse gases. So to reach net zero targets, they have to be phased out. Originally, that phasing out plan in new homes was going to be 2026. Rishi Sunak, in an attempt to be both magnanimous and caring for the planet, has pushed that back to 2035. The oil and gas heaters will be replaced by the more expensive heat pumps, which are more efficient, but run on electricity, which is more expensive. So the overall cost to the punter will be higher. And for that, there will be government subsidies. This makes it the ultimate 21st century government policy, giving taxpayers money back to taxpayers in an attempt to influence their behaviour in a way that makes absolutely no bloody difference to anything whatsoever. Pardon my expletives, but sometimes you just have to vent about how stupid our leaders are. It's the same in Australia, which has enough oil, gas and uranium to make it the freest, most prosperous country in the world. But instead, Energy Minister Chris Bowen has plans to make us endure blackouts ever higher energy costs and abandon our job-creating heavy industries. The unelected globalists are not even hiding their plans anymore. Remember last year when King Charles was told by Prime Minister Liz Truss, then her replacement Rishi Sunak, not to attend the COP27 catastrophism convention in Egypt? Well, there were no such constraints this year. King Charles was the first head of state to address the conference, telling the assembled elites they were the, quote, hope of the world. Like hell, they're the scum of the earth, up to their necks in a gravy train while the rest of us freeze in the dark or sweat through a heat wave in a blackout. It's enough to make you reconsider the point of the monarchy. Two weeks ago, I interviewed cartoonist Bob Moran, who used to work for The Telegraph, but was sacked for being too outspoken about certain issues, as if being outspoken is a crime in the media these days. Here is what he told me about his changing opinion about the monarchy. I, I mean, I always supported the monarchy, but not simply because I liked the pomp and pageantry and palaces and the fancy clothes. I thought it's a good thing that we have um, a figure separate from government who represents our values and our character, who has sworn an oath to protect those things should they ever be under threat 
from anybody. And if you like, that was the, the monarch's one role. This was the one test of the monarchy, really, that had happened for hundreds of years, I would say, where suddenly everything they had sworn an oath to protect was being destroyed, and they did nothing. Well, at first they did nothing, and then they endorsed it. I'll be bringing that whole interview with Bob Moran to you next week, and you won't want to miss it. But first, here is Andrew Bridgen, a member of the, an independent member of the House of Commons, who has received some data from New Zealand that reveals alarming patterns in adverse reactions to COVID vaccines. Have a listen. I'm joined now by Andrew Bridgen of the Reclaim Party, the member of the House of Commons for North West Leicestershire. He used to be a member of the Conservative Party, but was, uh, was removed because he was too outspoken about the vaccines, the COVID vaccines, and in fact, just a couple of months ago, delivered a, a dramatic speech to the House of Commons, dramatic for two reasons. One, it, uh, it outlined how high excess deaths were in Britain, and also, the House of Commons was virtually empty at the time. Andrew Bridgen is a, almost an, a lone voice in politics uh, and even across Britain in talking about excess deaths and the long-term effects of the vaccines that were, let's be honest, forced into the population both in Britain and in Australia and in New Zealand. And that's why he's on the show tonight. Andrew, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Can you, uh, I'm not sure you're, you're at liberty to explain how you got your hands on this data, but if you are, please do so. And also tell us what you've got. I was approached um, through intermediaries a couple of weeks ago when I've spoken to uh, a whistleblower. There may be more than one whistleblower, to be honest, but one's come out so far. Um, and um, he maintained that he was working for the New Zealand government. He'd been tasked to set up a data set uh, to allow him to uh, monitor and pay people for the vaccinations. And the data set that he built up and managed um, had got the names of all the individuals in New Zealand who've been vaccinated, their date of birth, what, when they were vaccinated, what they've been vaccinated with, which batch, which which vaccine, uh, where they were vaccinated, the name of the vaccinator, obviously for paying them. Um, and interestingly, there was a column at the end, which was date of death, if applicable. Even the New Zealand government think that probably, you know, when you're sadly uh, passed over, um, you probably don't need any more vaccines. Yeah. yeah, well, that's one way to save money. I mean, the whole thing is shaping up to be one of the most sinister uh, acts by any, any government or, you know, a global act by all governments, it seems, that I've ever witnessed. Now, tell us what you can read into this data. Firstly, are, the, are there any patterns in the batches? I know there's a lot of uh, um, speculation about whether or not some batches are worse than others. Well, the, the, the whistleblower himself um, obviously was maintaining this data set and what pushed him to leak it to various people around the world who, who he was confident would do something with it was the fact that even he, uh, you know, by just looking at the raw data, thought there's something seriously wrong here, you know, too many, you know, some batches, too many people are dying, um, you know, 
uh, he, he'd got his own major concerns uh, about all of this. Um, so what we had to do, well, when we, when we got... Just, the, just to be clear, that this person who has given you this data was originally part of the program and obviously, and supposedly thought it was a, you know, the vaccine rollout was a good idea, but having been uh, sort of looked over the data, now realises, has come over to our side and realised that, in fact, the, the vaccine rollout was flawed and, in many cases, fatal. Is that correct? Yes, that's, that's what he thinks, looking at the data that this needs investigating and the, the information that he was um, the custodian of, he thinks that should be in the public domain because people need to see this data. And obviously, when we got all this data, I mean, there's major uh, you know, privacy concerns because it's got everyone's name on it. It's their data, it's their medical records. Um, so what we had to do, first of all, before we could have it analysed, is we had to anonymise all the data, take all the names out uh, of, of the uh, people who've been vaccinated and also the names of the vaccinators. And once it was in that form, then scientists and data analysts in the UK and around the world have been able to legally look at that data and draw conclusions from it. Um, so it's it's gold standard data. It's the New Zealand government's, what purported to be the New Zealand government's data uh, of all the vaccine history of, of a country. So it's a fantastic data set. Um, and what we've, what, what has, the data still being analysed, it's been analysed for a few weeks, um, and what people are saying to me from Hart, who are a very respected group of scientists I've been working with for over 12 months, is that what you see in the New Zealand data sets is that whenever someone's vaccinated in New Zealand, regardless of the season, the, uh, the mortality rate increases for five months following vaccination. So we normally expect uh, mortality rates to increase in the winter time in our respective countries. Um, but the vaccine was bucking that trend. Uh, so whenever you had it for five months, your chances of, uh, of, of expiring uh, increased. Um, and also that the relative mortality rate increases with every subsequent additional shot of the vaccine that you have. Uh, so that's very interesting. And um, also they, they ran the numbers on the whole database uh, and the excess deaths that, that were there. Uh, and there is some questions over whether the excess deaths in that database are, are not higher, considerably higher than, than the New Zealand government are making public. And I know in the UK, and I did spell this out in my speech in the House of Commons on the 20th of October on excess deaths, that the Office of National Statistics in the UK is producing uh, weekly mortality figures for the UK, about three three or four weeks in, in, in arrears uh, behind where we actually are, um, but that those figures aren't correct because they're understated, because in the UK a lot of young uh, deaths are being referred to, quite rightly for investigation by coroners as to why someone in their teens might have died playing football or sport or something. Uh, but what, what they don't want to admit to the public is that because those deaths are being referred to coroner's courts for an inquest, an investigation, they're not appearing in the weekly 
death figures. And one thing I did say, point out, it's quite right that suspicious deaths should be investigated. But one thing a coroner's report in the UK or anywhere else can't do is it can't bring anyone back from the dead. And, and those deaths should have been reported at the time they, they actually occurred. And what's happening in the UK is that the coroner's courts are being overloaded with cases. Um, and so there's probably a two or three year delay before those investigations will be carried out. And all that time, those, those, those deaths are not appearing in the in the figures at all and when, and when we challenged the uh, the ons in court um they refused to quantify how many deaths have been referred to coroners and are not appearing in the figures but they did admit that uh, the number was statistically significant so what we do know in the uk and i suspect's going on in new zealand and probably in australia as well is that the the actual death figures every week are considerably understated. Well, you told me last week, last time you appeared on the show a couple of weeks ago, that someone within the Conservative government had actually assured you that one day you would be vindicated when the truth comes out. It seems like government departments are ensuring that, uh, well, maybe not, maybe that they can't ensure that the truth won't ever come out, but they are certainly postponing it. And when you say the ONS, I think that's the Office of National Statistics, isn't it? And that. So that department on its own seems to be deliberately delaying the revelation of excess debts in Britain. Now, just getting back to the New Zealand statistics, though, has, have any stat statisticians yet put a figure on the excess debts from this data? Um, I think I'd like to reserve judgment. I've, I've heard some numbers, but I wouldn't until I've seen how they're calculated, I wouldn't want to go public with those, but they, they, they would be considerable. What, what I can share with your viewers is that some of the batches of vaccine have got very, very high mortality rates. So, you know, the highest is around 30% of people who took the vaccine on a certain day at a certain vaccine centre by a certain vaccinator um, are, are no longer with us. There are others batches at you know one in four. Thirty percent. Thirty percent. Sorry, I'm, I'm. I find that 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 is that. Well, that's another avenue of investigation that uh, seems to be. Um, and there are also that clusters that of current investigators are are, are are overlooking, and that is the fact that people don't realise these vaccines were actually, or I should say, are because some people are still taking them are actually very volatile liquids. And there are strict instructions about how to handle these vaccines. They have to be refrigerated, uh, you know, for particu at, at, at particular temperatures. They have to be opened for a, a particular, only a particular amount of time before they are used or that sort of thing. Now, my, I have a theory, I'm no scientist, but I have a theory that perhaps, you know, some, some people who were administering these vaccines were more careless than others. And if you're lucky, you, were, you had your vaccine, if you submitted to it, you had your vaccine administered by someone who wasn't as careful about it as, as, as they should have been. And perhaps you, as a result, you didn't take as much of a risk. Is that how you see it? I think there's all those sort of variables, but I mean, I've met and spoken with Mike Yearden on a number of occasions. He was the head of research at Pfizer for a very long time um, and he maintains that the speed that those vaccines were produced 
if you forget everything else about the safety and efficacy, he maintains that there is no way that any of those big pharma companies could have produced a homogenous vaccine in that number of doses in that speed of time. So he maintains that there are going to be huge differences between what's actually in the vials between different batches. Um, and, you know, he, he's looked at evidence from America. Um, and what would appear to be is that, you know, about 5% of the batches in America are responsible for 85% of the deaths, which would lead to thinking that there's, there is a massive difference between batches, potentially. Uh, we know that you know, the, way, the, the, way, the way the vaccines were produced um, and because of the, its use of mRNA technology, I understand that the, the, the vaccines in bulk can't be stirred. Well, you could see if you didn't get the manufacturing process perfected and it was brought out, rolled out very quickly, that you could have huge disparities between what's in one lot of vials and what's in another lot of vials. And that could have, obviously, uh, a major difference on the outcome for the people who get those vaccines. So just um, for the benefit of the viewers, Andrew, I'm not sure you can answer this question, but you might be able to. I mean, a lot of viewers will have taken the vaccine, perhaps, you know, a year ago or whatever. Is there a bell curve to the, uh, that you've found to the um, adverse reactions? I mean, if, if, for example, a viewer took the vaccine a year ago, is it, are, they, are they now in the clear if they haven't had an adverse reaction? There's evidence out there that uh, even two years after vaccination that um, the uh, excess deaths are still occurring. Um, I'll share with your viewers that I took two doses of um, the AstraZeneca vaccine. I didn't have any problem at all with the first one. Um, the second dose really hurt me um, and I've had a lot of side effects since. Um, but that's sort of two years ago. Um, and the side effects I've had this year are considerably less than they were last year. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm hoping that as time goes on, um, the, the risks to those of us who took the vaccines are reducing. Uh, and which, which brands uh, have you found are worse, are the worst? Is it, you know, Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca? Which ones have the worst record? Well, AstraZeneca was supposedly that bad that, I mean, it was withdrawn in Europe and then in the UK. Um, so obviously there were concerns around. Yep, not not in Australia, and also I mean the uh, the uh, COVID shield is actually the AstraZeneca vaccine that was produced in India and that was rolled out, and is still being rolled out as I understand. Uh, so there are concerns uh, about that. The figures I've seen for uh, severe adverse events are that it's an average of one one in eight hundred that the Pfizer would be around 1 in 990, um, uh, but Moderna were 1 in 162. So on that scale, that the Moderna is probably maybe worse than the Pfizer, although I'm well aware, and I've presented evidence to the government, which they've again rejected, but it's, it's unequivocal, that the Pfizer vaccine that was rolled out around the world was not the same vaccine that was given emergency authorization by all the regulators. And the answer to that is very straightforward. The smoking gun is the anaphylactic shock risk. Um, the, the vaccine that was approved by Pfizer, the mRNA was created by using PCR technology to replicate the messenger ribonucleic acids very, very carefully. 
and that was used in a trial to demonstrate supposed efficacy and safety. But again, there's some doubts now. Um, I mean, I'm hearing reports that 80% of the deaths in the uh, vaccine group of the Pfizer trial was, were kept out of the data that was given to the regulators. That's an allegation. Um, but what is clear is that four times as many people died of cardiac problems in the vaccine group of Pfizer than died in the control group who had the placebo. Um, and then after eight weeks of study, um, Pfizer destroyed the scientific basis of the, of the study itself by then vaccinating the control group. So that can never be re replicated. That's, that is a travesty of uh, science and the truth that they, they destroyed all means of ever holding the long-term effects of that vaccine to account because they vaccinated the people who were in the placebo group after eight weeks. So no one can say that uh, the, the, vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine is safe and effective after eight weeks because it's never been trialed for more than, more than eight weeks. Um, and we also know that when the vaccine was rolled out in the UK, uh, mass vaccination, after 24 hours, the regulator changed the protocol and said everyone's got to stay at the vaccine centre for 15 minutes. They weren't, and that's because of the risk of anaphylactic shock, uh, a reaction to the vaccine. They weren't expecting that because uh, they hadn't seen that in the trial data that they'd approve the vaccine. But, but it was happening on the ground on day one. And you only get anaphylactic shock when you've got endotoxins in the vaccines. And you only get endotoxins in the vaccines when they've been cultured up in bacteria to produce them. That's the bacterial cell walls and the plasmids creating in, impurities in the, in the vaccine and having a reaction to the patient. Well, I mean, that shows you that the Pfizer vaccine that was rolled out in the UK and around the world was actually cultured up in, in bacteria. That's not the way they manufactured the vaccine that was approved. It's, it's rather like, you know, they show, showing you a product and saying this is what you're going to get and, it, and it's, it's a handmade product, it's perfect. And then you get a mass produced one out the back, which is, is, not, is nothing at all like the thing you thought you were, you were buying. So we have uh, accused Pfizer of effectively carrying out a bait and switch operation where they show you something you might quite like to buy, but when you pay your money over, you get something inferior and different. These are the sort of things that really should be discussed at the COVID inquiry here in London. Uh, I, I, I don't, the, the, the Australian inquiry is, is going to be a whitewash as well. But really, in, the, uh, in Britain, the, um, all they're doing is just politician after politician trying to point the blame at uh, someone else for either you know, locking down too quickly or locking down not quickly enough. I noticed Matt Hancock actually appeared at the uh, former health secretary, Matt Hancock, appeared at the inquiry yesterday. What's your take on how the inquiry is going? Well, they're not asking the right questions. I mean, you've got a fantastic control for whether the lockdowns were effective um, or not. And the, you know, the cost benefit analysis of that as a strategy, because Sweden didn't. And all the evidence shows they've got less excess deaths and obviously they did a lot less damage to their economy as well, which, you know, the, the damage we've done to all our economies by locking down, uh, that's something that's going to be a scar on our future generations because that's going to affect their well-being and their prosperity going forward. We, we put about £500 billion on our national debt. That's one of the reasons we've got so much inflation now, which is also deeply damaging 
and the effect on young people. I mean, locking down for two years, if you're like me and you're in your 50s, it's, you know, 2% of your, your life. But if you're two, it's, it's half your life. Indeed. Yeah. Well, at your speech in the House of Commons in October, the most, uh, the, the most moving part of it was when you said, not only does no one care, no one cares that no one cares. And uh, I think without you um, try continuing to push this, Andrew, uh, you know, the, the victims would, would despair even more. Andrew, thanks for coming on the show. We will keep in touch because you're obviously tapped into a lot of, um, you know, a lot of good resources uh, when it comes to this. And uh, we won't let it go just as you won't. But thanks for coming on the show. Yes. And um, ask your viewers to keep the faith, keep fighting for truth, freedom and democracy, because that's all we've got. Fantastic. Thanks, Andrew. That was British MP Andrew Bridgen, and we will be staying in touch with him as he releases more and more details about the utter disaster that was the COVID lockdown and vaccine rollout. One of Bridgen's Australian counterparts is Alex Antich, the Liberal Senator for South Australia, who last week reminded the Australian government that New Zealand, under its new Conservative government, had given notice that it will be withdrawing from the World Health Organization's diktats regarding the next pandemic. And we all know the next pandemic is just round the corner. Have a listen to what Alex Antich told the parliament. The people of the world are waking up to the World Health Organization. They are waking up to this unelected globalist body, an organization seeking to accrue power at the expense of our medical and health sovereignty. During COVID, the WHO advocated for lockdowns and vaccine mandates, which of course turned out to be disastrous. Yet they have never taken responsibility for the damage brought by these policies. The WHO also failed to properly investigate the actions of the Chinese government in early 2020. They were uncritical of Big Pharma and they exaggerated the deadliness of this virus. Yet the Labor government in this country wants to afford the WHO more authority over our public health making decisions, not less. I've spoken many times in this place about Australia's need to withdraw from the World Health Organization, and I've spoken many times about the need for Australia to vote against the World Health Organization's amendments to the international health regulations and the proposed pandemic treaty. And if passed, these instruments will pave the way for these unelected global health bureaucrats to have unreasonable control over our public health policies and will provide even less scrutiny for pharmaceutical companies. The proposed instruments will afford the WHO more authority regarding regular social listening and analysis to identify the prevalence and profiles of misinformation and disinformation and false news. Take my word for it. This proposal has authoritarian intent. Now, fortunately for the citizens of Estonia, New Zealand, Slovenia and Slovakia, their leaders have listened to their people and notified the World Health Assembly that they intend to reject the pandemic treaty and the amendments to the international health regulation. And I'm calling on the Labor government to take seriously the concerns of those Australian citizens who are rightly sceptical of the WHO. The WHO's job during the pandemic was to provide unchecked sensible health advice. It failed. And we ought to reconsider our relationship with this entity rather than unquestionably yielding authority to it. 
Well, that was Senator Alex Antich, one of the few members of the Liberal Party, let alone federal parliament, trying to shed light on the truth about government incompetence. Well, now, if you are like me and despair about the state of Western civilization and are seeking some sort of reminder or reassurance that things aren't quite so bad, then have a look at the new six-part series, simply called The West, produced by a British think tank called the New Culture Forum. It is as good as Kenneth Clark's famous 13-part series from 1969 called Civilization, but it has a more urgent message. It deserves to be watched by millions of people. It's had reasonable results on YouTube so far, but I highly, highly recommend watching it. You can find it at Western Civilization, that's civilization with a Z, .co.uk. That's westerncivilization.co.uk. I was lucky enough to talk to its director, writer and presenter, Mark Sidwell, yesterday. Have a listen. In 1969, British art historian Kenneth Clark was commissioned by the BBC to produce a 13-part TV series which he called Civilization, and it was an instant international hit. It told the story of the evolution of Western civilization, mostly through the visual prism of art and architecture, and there was a good reason for that. One of the reasons the BBC commissioned the series was to showcase the new phenomenon of colour television. But its main message was not lost. At the height of the nuclear arms race and the Cold War, its essential message was that Western civilization was a fragile gift and the arms race was defending it. This year, another similar series was released, although not quite as long, thankfully, but I'd say as comprehensive and with an even more urgent message. Western civilization is still under threat from its enemies, but it's also under threat now from within. Its institutions have all been taken over, mostly been taken over, by people who don't adhere to Western values. And sadly to say, a lot of people who do live in Western civilizations have somehow abandoned the appreciation for what they have inherited. Can Western civilization survive? Well, that's what I'm going to ask Mark Sidwell, who produced directed and presented this new series for the New Culture Foundation think tank in London and I'm here in Hackney to talk to him about it. Mark, welcome to the Fred Paul Show. Hi Fred, great to be here. Let's get straight to the point. Can Western civilization survive? Absolutely. There's no question about that. The West is incredibly strong and in a way it's important to think that because when people start to think, oh the West is finished, that's when they start looking for someone else to surrender to. And I think that's what you see in a lot of our institutions. A lot of people around who've been far too willing, slightly defeatist about the Western model, to say, oh, well, you know, China, that looks quite interesting. That looks like the future. Let's go for that. Yeah. What's exciting about the West is that it always has this capacity to pull itself back together again because it's really very sort of competitive and open and emergent. It goes in new directions. It comes up with new ideas. But the 
problem it has is that makes it very divided as well. It's quite hard for it to bring itself together when it needs to defend itself and stand up for itself against a, a threat like China. And the thing that does that is this idea of thinking of all these different countries, all these countries across Europe and in America and in Australia as well, as one thing. And that's what the idea of the West does. So the West, the West can survive, but it needs to hold on to this idea of itself in order to defend itself against external threats. One of the, one of the key points you make is that the West is self-critical. I think that self-criticism has actually gone too far, hasn't it? <laughs> no question about that, yes. I mean, self-criticism is a powerful thing. But you have to, to understand what you actually have and what you're at risk of losing because these things can take a long time to build up. And it really, I think it's an institutional problem. In some ways, this sort of spirited idea of the West is always questing, always trying to come up with new things. It's still very strong. It's even strong in you know, the new woke warriors of today. But they have no respect for the institutional structures that Western civilization has built up to make the most of itself. These structures of democracy, of rule of law, of freedom of speech, these are the things that they are tearing down. And without those, the West may survive, but it will be a much weaker and, and a worse West. You make two really valid points, well, you make a lot of valid points, but two of the points that, that uh, sort of um, stuck out for me were that the West consists of individuals who drive Western civilization? At the end of the at the, at the end of the series, you say, well, you know, how can the West survive? And you say something along the lines. I'm paraphrasing from memory. Well, look around you. It's you. It's you. But earlier in the series, you also make the point, more implicitly, that there is a sort of absence of gratitude for what we've inherited, isn't there? Mm -hmm. And I think gratitude is is a good way to think about the West, you know, because. Pride is easy and pride is always dangerous, you know, and yes. in the face of the extraordinary things that have happened in the West, which, you know, is this the great adventure in human history where, you know, it's rescued people from uh, uh, poverty, uh, sort of ended slavery, sort of tremendous moral innovation, scientific, artistic innovation. So it's easy to look at that and feel pride, but that's dangerous. And then that becomes a bit static and it becomes a bit too defensive. Uh, but gratitude which, you know, is just like this extraordinary thing that we have that makes you want to hold on to it and treat it well and, and carry it forward and, and continue that, that adventure forward. That's it's a much healthier way to think about it, I think. It's, it's indirectly related to, I think, the subject of your first, of the first uh, episode in the series, which is religion. I think you kind of part company with Kenneth Clark, Kenneth Clark here because Clark, back in those days, could take a, a certain religious foundation for granted. Whereas now that has largely been abandoned, how central is Christianity in this cultural war? I mean, I'll just add another point, and that is that our opponents in this cultural war, they have a religion of their own, environmentalism and identity politics. They would say it's not religious, but I'd say it, it, it pretty much ticks all the boxes of a religious devotion. We need a spiritual framework in which to fight this battle. How important is Christianity to that? Well, Christianity is very important. It's right at the, the foundation of the West. And I think it's very clear that humans are religious creatures. And when you take away one form of religion, something else comes in to fill that gap. And it may be much worse. What happened with Christianity in the West is, is enormously important because 
it, it really shaped the foundations of a lot of the institutions that we now take for granted. The respect for the individual, the respect for women, which is something that I wanted to particularly draw attention to, is really there in the foundations of, of, of what Christianity brings to the West. But although we think of this as something that's gone away, and it's true that culture, cultural Christianity is not as central as, as it was at the heights of the culture, at the same time, intellectuals are starting to bring it back. You saw Ayan Hirsi Ali recently saying that she was a Christian, which was very interesting, but also the historians. So Tom Holland's excellent book, Dominion, uh, more serious uh, books by, by other scholars like Larry Seedentop as well, that are really saying, if you look at the history, the truth is that it's not just an enlightenment thing, that these Western values really go quite deep into the Middle Ages. They go back into this period where Christianity was very formative. Jordan Peterson seems to be leading that charge back to it. it, it it's almost a, an unavoidable direction, isn't it? Mm -hmm. to, that you know, a, an appreciation of of Western civilization is inevitably going to lead you back to Christ. Uh, certainly, those values are there. Look, I mean, I, I'm a Christian myself. I go, I go to church. I, I, I think Christ is is, is someone that, that yeah. people should come to individually. Yeah. But it's important, of course, that the West is a place where. Christianity is a choice. That, that choice at the heart of so much in the West is also something that comes from Christianity, which is about the idea that religion is, is a choice of, of belief. You have to turn to Christ in your own heart. And that, of course, shapes uh, what comes out of it. So it's important at the same time to say that it's not about saying that everyone has to, yeah. has to have this imposed from the top, which would be a very sort of more of a Chinese approach to it. <laughs> I just, um, I just returned to the concept of gratitude because, and I'll explain to the viewers, we're in Hackney in East London, and this is where Mark lives. Hackney doesn't have the most, uh, most sort of um, uh, salubrious uh, reputation. In fact, the word hackneyed comes from this area. Now, can people be grateful living in high-rise, you know, public housing and, you know, in a, in a cold, sort of barren neighbourhood like this? Well, you know, there's sort of, you have to look below the surface, I suppose. I live here partly because it's a very culturally dynamic place. It has uh, some of the best coffee in, in London, probably. Indeed, some, I can vouch for that. Yeah, yeah. So possibly some of the best coffee uh, in, in Europe. Vouch baby, if you're ever in the neighbourhood. <laughs> it's won many awards, but, yes. uh, you know, th there's, a, there's a lot that goes on here. And also, you know, I'm, as I talk to you, I can see over your shoulder the spire of the parish church here. You don't have to look very deep below the surface to find the, the foundations of the West on, on every street corner in, in London and, and everywhere around the West world of course the trouble is that the people simply don't know how to interpret those things that are all around them they don't know where these institutions come from they don't know the role that the church has played and they only hear the negative stories about how well we need to leave all that behind because that was terrible and yeah. all, all, all the negative stories the funny thing about the story of the West is that this used to be mainstream. It's not just Kenneth Clark back in the, in the 60s. At the end of the 80s, the BBC made The Triumph of the West, which was a story, very good actually, but rather more forgotten, not so famous. Very good documentary series by a senior historian about how the West really sort of conquered the world and sort of transformed the world. But, but now that's become unsayable. Yeah, it, it has. Well, and partly the, one of the reasons for that is that the, uh, the, our opponents in this cultural battle, if I can put it that way, have completely taken over education. Now, you, you put it very succinctly. I highly recommend this series to all viewers. It, uh, it, you can see every episode on YouTube, and we'll put the link up later. But one of the episodes talks very comprehensively about how uh, Marxists, essentially, have taken over education and transformed education 
from something that was turning churning out intelligent individuals and instead um, treated them like you know inputs to a machine because they were seen as blank slates mm. that could be turned into obedient slaves if I could put it uh, in you know Marxist uh, society mm -hmm. it's awful isn't it? it it's terrible and yeah that was that was an interesting thing to discover because I think when you when you dig back into into the history of it you can see the terrible things that happened in the Russian Revolution and you know and all, all the horrors that came down the line from that later on and indeed actually going back further to the, to the French Revolution a lot of it comes out of this idea of blank slatism because once you believe that then you start to see human beings as just like sort of puppets or that things that you're going to mold and that people can just come in and, and shape them as rather than as these thinking choosing individuals that's at the heart of the Christian idea yeah. of what people, a moral individual well, is. It treats people uh, who, as not having a soul mm. essentially born without a soul but just born into a, a machine. Now one other point I've got to, I've got to raise with you yeah. from the series which I found incredibly charming and we're both uh, we're both actually beneficiaries of this one of the key uh, sort of uh, technological developments of the West is the invention of spectacles. Tell us about that, Mark. I, I love this story. It, it, I think it's very underappreciated. You know, we're, we're so used to them. But of course, for a long time, spectacles didn't exist. They had to be invented. They were invented in, in Italy in the Middle Ages. But it's an enormously important invention because, uh, okay, so some people need glasses when they're younger, but almost everyone needs glasses when they get a little bit older. They get into their 40s and they can't do close work anymore until they invented glasses. Now that really matters because suddenly people can work a lot longer, they can do a lot more close work, they can also spend a lot more time studying fine documents which are quite hard to read without glass, especially when you're older. And this was very important in the Renaissance when people were going back into the archives, the monastic archives and digging up these Greek and, and, and uh, Roman uh, Latin documents. So that really, really helped. So it's enormously important and actually it helped also with the spread of printing, which is also uh, you know, a very powerful technology because when people can read slightly finer print, uh, you, can, you can make the print smaller in the books, it makes the, the, the economy different, you have a much larger proportion of people who can read later in life when they're wealthier. So in a way, creating glasses helped to create the market conditions where printing was possible, or at least more economically fruitful. So spectacles have these, these huge influences on what comes later, but it's a very unappreciated invention. Yeah. And from that, you know, we developed the civilization that we have today. Yeah. It's, it's extraordinary. And, and also, of course, lenses in spectacles then lead, a little bit later, because there's a long gap, but they lead to telescopes and they lead to microscopes. It's the same technology. You just put them into, into tubes and do other things with them. And that starts to unlock all kinds of extraordinary things about science and the universe, small and large, uh, the theory of disease and germs, uh, to understanding stars and breaking out of the sort of geocentric uh, model. You know, really, really exciting things that come when you have these extraordinary inventions. Also led to these two cameras that we <laughs> There you go. <laughs> well, there's a whole lot more of really charming, fascinating and important uh, revelations in this six-part series. I can't recommend it enough. You'll see the, uh, the, the link to the YouTube channel uh, on the screen. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for joining me on the Fred Paul Thanks Show. so much, Fred. Well, that's all from me for today. Thanks for watching. Next week, I'll bring you that interview with Bob Moran. You won't want to miss that. Till then, stay warm.